Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Real Estate Coaching Radio, America's number one trusted resource for realtors who demand authentic, real-time coaching. Starring award-winning real estate coaches Tim and Julie Harris. Get ready for unfiltered, full-strength honesty about what is truly working to get you into action and make you money in this new real estate boom. Now to our hosts, Tim and Julie Harris. And welcome back, everyone. Welcome back to Real Estate Coaching Radio. We are joined today by Jonathan Smoke, the Chief Economist for Realtor.com, the official site of the National Association of Realtors. Smoke is a 20-year veteran of the real estate industry and has held a number of executive roles throughout the industry. Prior to working for Realtor.com, he served in key executive roles for Hanley Wood, an information and marketing services company serving the residential, commercial design, and construction industries. He's also an entrepreneur with business ownership and consulting experience and has a master's in business administration from the University of Texas at Austin. He joins us today to discuss the August and September National Housing Trend Reports. We're going to go over some of the autumn 2014 housing trends that are happening right now, and he's going to help us keep up with today's changing real estate marketplace. So let's now welcome Jonathan Smoke as we join our host, Tim Harris. So, Jonathan, first of all, welcome back to Real Estate Coaching Radio. I really enjoyed um, our first uh, co-hosting venture that we did a couple months ago, and I'm looking forward to this one, too. And, man, have a lot of things changed in the last couple months. What what things pop to mind uh, as being the most, I'd say, surprising? Anything surprising in the housing scene um, in the last couple months you want to share with the listeners? Well, thanks for having me back, Tim. But is this first proof that your audience can handle a little dose of economics on a periodic basis? <laughs> exactly. Um, you caught so, me midstream <laughs> drinking coffee. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So since we talked last uh, in, in August, uh, we've seen solid progress in the economic recovery and continued year-over-year improvement in housing. We now have the benefit of looking at both August and September data, uh, and even today, the initial GDP estimate for the third quarter came out, and it was 3.5% growth, where analysts were expecting only 3%. And that's a perfect summary of the economic data and performance we've seen in August and September. Almost to a metric, the economy is finally starting to fire on all cylinders. Uh, employment growth this year is looking to be the best year we've seen since 2000. And we're really seeing it across all sectors of the economy. Manufacturing, services, retail, and construction are all reporting growth. So, of course, on the housing front, you would expect um, us to be seeing improvement with all those fundamentals improving. And we're seeing it in the form of the pace of existing home sales um, and in other data points. Um, Now, in August, uh, the National Association of Realtors reported that existing home sales dipped slightly uh, but then in September, uh, September had more of an increase than the August decline. Um, so from a pace perspective, the quarter was, was continuing to be up uh, quarter over quarter and, of course, year, or year, year over year. Uh, we are seeing total numbers, though, a bit beneath last year. 
Um, but really, I encourage people to look at the composition of those sales because they have improved dramatically. Uh, so, for example, if you factor out distressed sales, the foreclosures and the short sales, and you just look at the normal sales, uh, then September was actually up uh, 2.5% year over year. Well, we're also seeing the return to normal uh, normal types of transactions, right? So not so much investor activity. We're seeing normal buyers and sellers enter the market. Uh, we're seeing first-time buyers come back in. We're seeing move-up buyers. We're seeing downsizers. We're seeing, as you and I predicted a couple months ago, we're seeing a return to a market that will inevitably be a ever-increasing, and I'll call it a real estate boom, that will happen over the next 7 to 10 years. So listeners... Everything that Jonathan and I are sharing with you so far is optimistic that you should be cheering about. Now, we're going to get to a couple of potential headwinds here in a second that might put some of you back on your heels. But at this point, all of you should be loving the fact that you're realtors and you're in the right place in the right time. And our industry is probably going to be one of the fastest growing sectors in the economy over the next decade. So, Jonathan, yeah, there was – there... go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry. And, and make sure you make sure you reinforce the point that – uh, we are returning to normal, and that distress is down. Because if if we could have only asked for one thing to improve this year, losing the distress, uh, I think, would have been it. And as we've been hearing Ariana Grande sing all summer long, I got one last problem without you. <laughs> um, <laughs> right. So that's a good thing to have. Well, and yeah, I mean, there's reports that are coming out every month that saying they're saying essentially the number of distressed properties because you know, guys, obviously, naturally, the home values are starting to increase. It's taking a lot uh, fewer people are underwater, and you know, so it's all for the most part in most of the country, you guys are seeing the markets uh, in some cases dramatically improve. In other cases, you're starting to see them slowly improve. But the bottom line is, is at least they're not going the other way. I mean. You know, it wasn't so long ago that we were hearing month-over-month reports of things worsening, and now we're definitely on an upswing, and the improving market finally has momentum. Um, You know, it was even a little dicey at the beginning of the year, but now there's no question as we roll into 2015 that, yeah, there might be some ebbs and flows, but for the most part, this is really going to be the continuation of a really great housing recovery. Now, there is some headwinds that might potentially slow things down or at least give the market a moment to pause. And one of those headwinds, and Jonathan and I were talking about this prior to today's show, was in the form of an announcement from Janet Yellen yesterday saying that QE is over. No more buying of bonds, the $4 trillion in mostly mortgage-backed um, you know, securities that the, the Fed's been investing in. They're not buying those anymore. So there's reasons to believe that there uh, is going to be an increasing interest rate environment um, and the question is when. So, Jonathan, you're the economist pick up there, and correct me if I said anything wrong. <laughs> <laughs> no, you got it right. So, basically, the Fed has had two tools in their arsenal. Um, the first and the n- more traditional one is simply uh, what they do with the federal funds rate. But when they took that all the way to zero uh, back when the housing crisis first first began, they really had nothing left that they could do, and so they invented this concept of quantitative easing, and we've gone through now three three rounds of it. Uh, but they stuck to their word. They said they were going to taper that off. In fact, it was the fear of the taper last summer that led mortgage rates, um, you know, starting in May to jump. Then when they actually started the taper and cutting back on their bond purchases last September, that's when we actually saw mortgage rates uh, go back down a little bit. 
Um, but now we've worked completely through that process. They, this is the last month um, that they're doing those bond purchases. But in the short term, on the on the rate side, they've said that they uh, they intend to keep uh, keep rates uh, where where they are. Uh, and mainly that's because we've yet to see inflation pose any sort of threat, um, and they still see slack on on uh, the employment side of things. Meaning we're not quite to the unemployment targets, and labor participation has has been down low. Um, most of the analysts that cover the space, from economists to uh, folks on Wall Street and people in the bond market, essentially, it's the, the big question is when. When will we see the federal funds rate um, tick up a, a quarter point? And the bets kind of range from uh, early in the spring uh, to late in 2015 to possibly as late as early 2016. So it's it's simply become a question of when, not if, uh, the rates will go up. And just like we had with the, the fear of the taper, the same situation is going to play, play out now. So meaning the market is going to anticipate and um, the interest rate activity happening and the effect will be mortgage rates will go up before the Fed actually acts. Um, so my, my best guess at this point is that we will see mortgage rates go up uh, sometime in the middle part of next year. Uh, we probably will not see a substantial increase. It's likely to be something like 50 basis points um, that we will see mortgage rates move uh, within the next year. But it does lead you to the, you know, the absolute perspective that if you're a potential client uh, is thinking about selling and buying or just simply buying, uh, that the one thing we can hold true um, is that some, uh, within the next year we're going to have both higher prices and higher rates. Uh, so if they have access to credit today and they have the, the down payment um, and they can find that home of their dreams, now is the time uh, to act to take advantage of those rates. Yeah, there's no question we're going to be looking. I mean, I remember Julie and I were in our early 20s. We bought our first house, and the interest rate was 7%. People were, like, congratulating us on the low interest rate, you know. I mean, so there's no question that um, going forward, this is going to be seen as probably the best time in the next 30 years to have secured long-term financing on on a house. I mean, the rates in the fours and the threes, kind of crazy. So I know a lot of you guys are getting the seasonal type objections. Yeah, we're going to wait until the spring from sellers. We're going to wait until the spring from the buyers. You might want to share uh, share with them this information so that they can have all the information that they need before making a decision. You know, from a seller's perspective, yeah, they don't want to be hassled during the holidays. It makes sense. But maybe the sellers need to be taking into consideration the fact that if they're buying something, the interest rates increase, they aren't going to necessarily be able to afford what they've otherwise wanted to afford. And the other side to it is there might be fewer buyers depending on what the rates increase to. That could take buyers out of the market because obviously fewer people will be able to afford homes. I mean, so these are all the balls that are being juggled right now that no one really knows how they're all going to you know, end up being caught, and inevitably a lot of them won't be. So, you know, inform your clients, be informed uh, yourself so that you can help them make uh, the right decisions. Because, you know, honestly, as Jonathan just alluded to, now probably is the best damn time to be putting your house for sale and buying something, and not next year. Um, you know, so just keep all those things in mind. So we're seeing a slowdown. We hear this from all of our coaching clients um, across the country that they're reporting a slowdown in the fall. Any reason to believe this is anything other than just the normal autumnal, you know, end-of-the-year seasonal slowdown? 
Oh, yeah, it's it's pure seasonality. So listings did decline in August um, and September, uh, but they do typically decline starting in, in August. Um, but what's interesting about this year uh, are a couple of things, one of which is we've yet to see the median list price decline because it also pricing has a seasonal pattern to it. And normally you see uh, listings and uh, median list prices decline. And consistent with the pricing holding steady, uh, the median age of inventory is continuing uh, to decline year over year. So that tells us that all that we're seeing today is pure seasonality, um, but relative to prior years and especially relative to last year, the market is tighter and is is favoring sellers uh, in the condition that we're in. Um, and again, that pattern's held true um, in both August and September. So let's touch on some of the macro trends that um, you guys read about in the August National Housing Trend Report. A lot of focus is on the millennials um, in that August report. And then September, the trend was heavy uh, was tech-heavy industries and baby boomers. Can you tell us how you picked those topics? Share with the listeners some of the little pieces of information that you guys discovered that maybe our listeners wouldn't have normally thought of or known about? Well, sure. I I basically don't like just printing numbers uh, in a a table. Uh, I like to tell a story with the data to help folks understand what's what's going on. Uh, So with the August numbers, we focused on millennials. Millennials are a hot topic and likely to be for, honestly, Tim, at least for you and I, for the rest of our lifetime given their size, and so we decided to focus in July on affordable markets where inventory was solid and better than last year uh, to enable millennials to purchase um, you know, their first home if, if they can qualify for a mortgage. Uh, then in, with the September data, we couldn't help but bring attention to the fastest moving markets because there's quite a bit of variation uh, in terms of, of several metrics, but uh, the, the median days on market is is pretty significantly different. And so we focused on the markets uh, where that age of inventory was under 60 days. And among several trends we found uh, that those markets had in common was quite simply that they are opportunity magnets. Uh, they're particularly strong in engineering and, and tech-oriented jobs. Uh, and they also happen to have very large numbers of baby boomers who live there today and baby boomers have been driving um, more of the activity than other generations so far in this recovery. Well, so you just touched on a whole bunch of things. My mind's going in a bunch of different directions. So the baby <laughs> boomers have been so the baby boomers have been driving the recovery. In other words, the the youngest baby boomer now is what, 53, something like that? Uh yes. Yeah. So the five, the last baby boomer turns 55 by 2019. Okay, so we're still uh, the the biggest segment of the housing transactions basically is from those guys moving up and those guys moving down essentially. But the maybe the listeners don't know this, the the millennials, they are children in essence. The number of millennials to the number of baby boomers isn't it like 3 to 4 to 1. In other words, isn't that group of people so much larger than even their parents? I I don't remember the exact numbers. Do you know anything about that? Yeah. Yeah, so, um, and in fact, for all your listeners that happen to be going to New Orleans next week, uh, come to the Realtor University session on Sunday morning uh, that's on consumer preferences and trends because I'll be a part of that and presenting specifically on millennials. So I've been doing a deep dive uh, on those folks. Uh, That crowd is 
the millennials is roughly about 90 million, by far the largest generation. And yes, they do dwarf uh, the the boomers, um, but you know they are just now in that period of forming households. So they make up a tiny fraction of of homeowners today. They make a tiny fraction of of households, and of course their home ownership rate has been uh, low and even low by uh, historical standards because of they came of age you know, essentially at the wrong the wrong time, um, but we know today that the the biggest factor uh, that's not normal uh, in, in today's market is the percentage of first time buyers. And by my calculations, millennials uh, make up about 60% of what we call first time buyers. So you do have older older households. You do have some. Uh, in fact, like immigration-driven purchases that are, that are households that are that are older than millennials, but by far, when we talk about a lack of a first-time market, it's it's principally millennials today, and that's been a function of both limited supply. Um, so those affordable homes that they could have been buying over the last couple of years were instead bought up by big investment firms and turned into rentals. Uh, but it's also very much uh, what I would describe as overly tight credit conditions and you know to quantify this i would i would estimate that we would have at least 15% more sales uh this year if credit conditions uh were back to more normal standards i did you hear the uh little news blurb that ben bernanke got turned down for a mortgage refi <laughs> absolutely and that's that's like the perfect poster child for what it's meant uh, to have these these tight standards, the, st- the standard issue uh, is is basically one uh, that has to do with every part of the qualification requirements being too tight, and, and that's a reflection of what the banks have been referring to as putback risk. Essentially, um, while the QM standards, the qualified mortgage standards, were being drafted, uh, they basically had an initial set of standards. Um, so, like the the debt to income ratios and and the loan to income ratios and uh, the minimal uh, credit score. Um, so, to avoid any chance of those standards coming back to haunt them with mortgages several years down the road, banks have basically added overlays, buffers, and more or less it means uh, they were trying to find every reason not to lend. And that's not to their discredit; uh, they were trying to kind of control the risk, but the reality is even Ben Bernanke uh, couldn't qualify for a refi on his home, and we all know that he has the income to be able to handle um, well, we hope, right? be a low-risk yeah. investment. Well, so overlays, guys, what that means is basically Fannie, Freddie, right, whoever's you know insuring the mortgage has standards, but what the banks are doing is they're putting an overlay on top of that, so they're putting their own rules uh, for qualification on top of the conventional um, you know standards, and that's causing a lot of people not to qualify. And absolutely, it makes sense. That's preventing a lot of what would have been first-time buyers purchasing homes. But you know, it's interesting, Jonathan. There's a lot of well-meaning um, sort of quasi-housing reporters that are talking about the fact that they are theorizing that millennials won't have the same appetite for housing as the previous generation. Are we seeing any real evidence of that, other than what I mean? We're sort of talking about now. No, I, I, I'll just tease with a little bit of what I'm going to be speaking about at the convention. I, I think that conventional story is completely wrong. 
um, what you basically see is that um, millennials have attitudes about housing that are as strong as any other generation. So they, uh, when you ask them to describe the American dream, owning a home is part of that. When you ask them to uh, describe where, how they think they'll live in 20 years, uh, it, it's absolutely the same kind of scenario that we've all uh, described. Um, it's just they have a few, have had a few impediments. Number one, they had a much higher unemployment rate. So when you break down unemployment by ages, it was the millennials that suffered the most uh, during the recession. And again, they were just coming out of college. The oldest ones were coming out of college, right? Uh, as as the recession un, unfolded. Uh, that caused them to retreat and do the rational thing and go back to school uh, and or move back with, with mom and dad. And, and so there's been a ton of what I would say is noise today talking about how, oh, this is a forever different shift. Um, they are going to prefer to rent. Uh, they want to share everything. Uh, they won't want to own a home. Uh, and, mm-hmm. and the reality is, n- number one, they are just like the rest of us um, with regards to uh, life. And so they will be going through life events. Maybe they got a slightly later start than the rest of us. Uh, But, for example, I'm going to be showing uh, recent birth statistics, and I'm pretty confident that boomers are not a part of the birth uh, explosion that seems to be going on right now. Um, And I think, you know, the old... The old line, baby needs a new pair of shoes. Well, she also needs a room of her own. And living in mom and dad's basement uh, or living uh, with two or three other people in an apartment uh, just, just isn't going to cut it. And, in fact, if you look at millennial patterns across the country, what you really see is that their homeownership rate and their, and their attitudes towards renting are really based on where they live. So if you're in the high-cost areas of, of New York or Washington, D.C., uh, Los Angeles, San Francisco, Silicon Valley, uh, then yes, they have incredibly low home ownership uh, rates. But they are also in extremely large numbers everywhere else. Um, and in fact, their home ownership varies from being above the national norm uh, to being extremely low in places uh, like, like New York. And I think what we're going to see, or what we're already seeing unfolding potentially this year, is that millennials are looking and there's no doubt from our data from uh, web traffic and uh, what they're doing that millennials are looking at real estate. Um, I'll share one statistic that I love the most. All summer long, starting in June and through the month of September, because we don't have October uh, complete numbers yet, half of all adults aged 21 to 34, so it's most of the um, you know, post-college millennials, have looked at real estate online every single month. And that doesn't mean awesome. they're actively shopping, but they are very much plugged in and interested in this world. And oh, by the way, 86% of them say they intend to use a realtor uh, when it's time That's for them awesome. to buy. Yeah, well, I was, you know what I'm thinking about is if I were in that age group and I were looking for a career path, it would make a hell of a lot of sense for me to get my real estate license and sell to my peers you know that's that's like a no-brainer opportunity so um age group wise so the millennials are as young as right now how what's the youngest uh, the youngest of millennial the young- today is 30 is 13 the youngest is 13 okay. uh, and the, the oldest, oldest 30 said basically in the mid 30s yes that's right Thir- mid 30s okay so and there's 90 million of these guys basically yes 
90 million. Yeah. Wow, that's incredible. So this this is a trend that's going to be lasting. Obviously, they're going to be directing not just housing trends, but automotive trends, fashion trends, music trends, color trends, uh, communication trends. I mean, when those people start really coming, to, and, and, and I assume it's like the baby boomers where essentially there's the fewest of the oldest and it gets bigger like a mushroom. Is that correct? Oh, um, actually, it's it's a little bit more of an even shape. Uh, they didn't quite have the distribution that the boomers did. I, I'm actually going to be talking about that data. But I think the chart, when you look at the year of births um, over time, it's the most optimistic long-term chart of why you should be in real estate <laughs> that you could ever ask for. Because right. uh, Generation Y, the millennials, are the biggest generation we've ever had. But Generation Z, who we're still making, <laughs> because there's only <laughs> 12 years of them so far, is on pace to be even bigger uh, than the millennials. So in other words, wow. the pain that we've been going through is sort of related to our generation, Tim. <laughs> yeah, the Gen X generation the, X. You know. Yeah. Yeah, I know. It's Blame true. It I mean, most, the people, most of the people that I went to high school with um, are really, they're still back on their heels. And I communicate with these guys through Facebook and whatever, and a lot of them are still suffering from negative equity or they've made, they overreached when they're investing in real estate. Yeah. So, it's our generation, I think, that's always been forgotten about and will probably continue to be forgotten about, but such is the way. So I'm out there as a realtor, and I'm somewhere you know, in the United States. I'm listening to this interview. I'm listening to these sort of big macro trends. I'm thinking about how I can actually apply this information to my business today. I heard something about you know, I'm feeling optimistic. I'm realizing that I am in the right industry. I'm realizing the fact that um, I'm, my industry is poised to be have explosive, like unprecedented growth maybe, well, certainly reaching beyond my normal career lifespan. So what should I be doing now? From an, ec an economist's perspective, where should my focus be? Well, so inventory is tight today, right? And we really don't see that dramatically changing going forward. Um, so uh, interest, like I mentioned with millennials, but by the way, Gen Xers are not far behind and boomers uh, are just a bit behind them. They're all looking at real estate. You can tell that there's pent-up demand just on the way that the, the website behavior. Um, so I would say timeliness is important because if we have tight supply and all of these people interested, then you're going to continue to see the kind of trending down in, in age of inventory that we've experienced. And as we were discussing earlier, it is a near certainty that both prices and mortgage rates will be higher next year. So would-be buyers will be intently looking because they're rational. They understand, uh, they understand this kind of once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. Um, and along that line, and very similar to something you said earlier, Tim, I would say that it's a great time to encourage listing off-season or even at least listing earlier next year than, uh, than people uh, typically wouldn't because an enormous portion of that missing first-time buyer segment, that if indeed some of these um, uh, improvements in, in uh, opening up credit uh, take place early next year, uh, they don't have school-age children quite yet. So they're not quite beholden to the school year the way we traditionally uh, kind of let the market follow that. And I think that that's, that's an enormous opportunity. Uh, but bottom line, know your market, be aware of the demographics and these generational tr trends. 
to know the millennials, they're going to be driving us. So yes, you should know who Ariana Grande is and uh, you know, potentially even uh, have Taylor Swift's album, even if that might kill you. Um, and know how to speak to these folks because they're going to be a dominant force once they really enter the market uh, big time. Well, so let's talk about you're talking about market trends and knowing your market because that's kind of where my mind was going too, right? I mean, even like I always think back when Julie and I were selling real estate in Columbus, Ohio. And Columbus has never been a, and never probably will be a first tier real estate market in the sense that it's not, you know, the home appreciation there, it happens in pockets. It's not something that happens like in, you know, California or Arizona or Austin, for example. It's just nice, steady, keeps up with inflation, generally speaking. But even in Columbus, there were markets. Like I remember when we were selling real estate, German Village was really hot. For, you know, and then there would be these trendy little bubbles up. You know, there would be certain streets, and then there would be this new subdivision. So even in a normal market, like where Julie and I basically cut our teeth, you know, there always are going to be uh, opportunities. And so be opportunistic when you're selling real estate. It does make sense. And pay attention to the trends. Uh, you guys should know that a lot of times, um, you know, upper-end buyers, they'll move to trendy neighborhoods. You know, thinking back to Columbus, Ohio, I remember Muirfield for a long time was the trendy neighborhood in the 70s and 80s. And all of a sudden, Les Wexner, you know, decided to develop New Albany. And so a lot of the, you know, sort of uh, herd leaders from uh, – Muirfield moved out to New Albany, and then, you know, all these types of little micro-trends that happen in your marketplace, you guys really have to, you know, as Jonathan said, deep dive into your own MLS to know what's really going on so you can make the most of this this really fantastic housing recovery. And if you're not experiencing that, if you're not feeling like the winds are at your back, it's probably because you're not taking seriously the opportunity, or maybe I'm not using the right word when I say taking seriously, but you're not seeing the opportunity and then not exploring where the opportunity is for you in your particular market. But, you know, let's do talk about the best and the worst areas in the country, the, the information you're getting from the statistics from searching on Roller.com. What are you seeing? Any particular markets that are just kind of flat or depreciating or maybe not recovering as quick versus the others? Anything comes to mind when I ask that question? Sure. Um, so, looking across the country and all the major markets, so that you know the big the big markets that people would recognize that have the largest population centers, uh, the government classifies 366, for example, as as metropolitan statistical areas. Only about 10% of them are not looking like they are in full recovery mode. And what I mean by that is, are they seeing improvements in in multiple metrics that are you know classically tied uh, to um, good good conditions, so declines in unemployment, increase in, in employment, uh, good data that feeds into GDP uh, calculations, um, and are you know home prices uh, in, improving in those markets. Uh, of those ones that are that are not quite um, moving in the right direction uh, today, they tend to be small markets um, and small markets that are susceptible to individual local issues. So, just looking looking at that short list. Uh, for example, two markets that happen to be in Georgia pop out. And and some listeners may actually see the data that actually the state of Georgia has the highest unemployment rate in the country today. And it, you know, we're not used to seeing the high-growth southeastern part of the United States in that category. But, you know, for example, Warner Robins, Georgia, and Albany, Georgia, both have had to deal with big declines in government and government-related jobs that were essentially a result of the sequestration and, and the efforts to cut back on um, on the government's uh, budget uh, la last year. But that aside, let's focus on 
on the best performing markets. Uh, there are 60 uh, that are not just in recovery mode, they are in what economists call expansion mode because every month they are basically setting new highs uh, in those critical metrics like jobs and home prices uh, and even in areas like new construction. Uh, Texas is well represented in that group. Uh, it seems like Texas has been the one uh, bright star for years now. Uh, and so clearly markets like Austin, Dallas, Fort Worth, Houston, San Antonio all fit in that bucket. But we're also seeing other states with several markets on the list, uh, North Dakota, Colorado, uh, Utah, and then just a mixture of, of markets that, uh, that are basically high population growth uh, opportunity mag magnets like Raleigh-Durham, uh, Nashville, for example, and of course some classic major California markets. Um, and in fact, the list of the markets that are in expansion mode tend to be large markets. Um, and so there's clearly a lot of opportunities for the listeners there, um, the likes of Houston, Dallas, Washington, D.C., uh, the, the entire uh, San Francisco Bay, Silicon Valley area, San, Di San Diego. And, of course, that brings us right back to the markets we were highlighting uh, with the September data of, you know, these are the markets that are incredibly tight uh, from an inventory perspective, and inventory is moving pretty quickly. Again, getting back to knowing your own market statistics, and that's where we're seeing the new builders enter back into the market in those same markets, you know, and all, certainly all over Texas. It's you know, dotted with, and our own, Julie and I live just north of uh, Austin, and there were, what, six, 12 months ago, they announced that there was going to be 7,800 new homes that are going to get built here. And it's like, that's incredible, you know, and if you don't, if you're selling real estate in this market and you're not aware of that, um, and you're listing resale homes, that's going to be a real interesting um, you know, experience trying to explain to the seller that you hadn't prepared why their house isn't selling because it's having to compete against new construction. And also, you guys might want to consider aligning yourself with some of these builders, uh, befriending the build reps, getting their resale referrals. I mean, there's so many opportunities. It's, it's mind-boggling. I'm, I'm curious, though, from looking at the data, any anomalies in terms of the recovery, any head scratchers in terms of the data things that you just looked at and said, well, that doesn't even make sense in terms just from the traditional standpoint? Well, not really, and I'm extremely thankful for that because we've gone through years of, of head scratching, uh, things not making sense, and it's now more classic supply and demand. You know, the only thing that I scratched my head at in September was the fact that Omaha and Palm Bay, Florida, were listed alongside some of these extremely large, well-known uh, heated markets. But then when, we do when I dove into, I was essentially looking at what could you possibly make Omaha similar to, uh, to Dallas-Fort Worth um, and to Washington, D.C. And, and San Francisco. And, and the same was true for Palm Bay. And, and again, it's these interesting patterns like, well, all of those markets have a large number of engineering and tech-related jobs. Um, and that's an area of the economy that's been particularly strong. They, and all those markets had extremely high numbers of boomers. So boomers dominate everywhere today, but those markets in particular had even more boomers. Um, and since boomers are the ones approaching retirement year, life events, final child moving out perhaps for the second or third time, uh, thinking of the dream home and finally having the money to do it, or thinking about what they want to do for retirement or even investing in second homes, that's why uh, you're seeing the activity in these markets being so strong. So it sounds to me like 
what's happening is a sort of bifurcation of housing. And, and well, maybe I shouldn't say it that way, but of the country almost. There's areas that are recovering at a very rapid pace and some that maybe you just aren't doing so well, and they're following this sort of predictable demographic trends that's following, you know, the people are moving to where the jobs are. I mean, all these sort of make sense things. But do you, is there going to be a, a marketable disparity between the sort of have, housing haves and have-nots going forward? Do you think that's going to be something that's going to be more pronounced than maybe we're giving it credit for? Well, the, I, I do think you're going to see a lot more variability than we had, for example, in the boom um, when basically everything was booming, uh, and then in the bust when the credit crisis just just about um, you know killed everything, including the economy. So you are seeing uh, markets kind of exert um, ex- exert their attraction and their advantages, and a lot of it fundamentally, more than anything else in housing, has to do with jobs. And so that's also the clue as to where you're going to see uh, the millennials really buying is going to be related to where the hiring of millennials is is really ramping up. Um, and and so you're going to see that attraction, but then you're going to get the classic. Um, you know, examples of, okay, does that mean that only everybody in the country wants to live in uh, in Silicon Valley, uh, for example? Well, the downside to the Silicon Valley is affordability, um, and there's extremely uh, low opportunities for new construction, new development to keep pace with that. So it it presents then opportunities for other areas to become the new uh, attractive uh, hot spots. And indeed, for example, you know, the classic uh, story of Austin. Uh, Austin basically become a, became a tech hotbed when California became too expensive and too attractive. And I, I think you're going to continue to see those sorts of dynamics play out uh, across the country. Um, and you know, the one area that potentially suffers the most in that mix uh, you can generically say is more the Northeast and the Midwest, uh, the older markets. Um, but then there are huge exceptions uh, in that bucket. Like one of the biggest, uh, hottest markets today is Pittsburgh. Um, when I was growing up, Pittsburgh never kind of jumped out of your mind as a place that was glamorous and, and awesome for young people and opportunity. But that's the kind of uh, economic and demographic transfer, uh, transformation that Pittsburgh's been going through. So. I think you'll see that. You're going to see the battle of markets to attract businesses and attract people, and ultimately real estate's best where you have population and household growth, and all of that follows jobs. So from an investment perspective, listeners, I am taking away from what I'm hearing Mr. Smoke say two things. Obviously, if you're selling real estate in one of those markets, and you can get it. By the way, Jonathan, um, the trends report, how can our listeners get a copy of that? Uh, it's on Realtor.com in, in the Real Estate Trends section, which you can just go to the news category and, and find that easily. Actually, listeners, what I'll do is make it easier on you. Most of you listen in replay, so what we'll do is, Mr. Producer, I know you're listening, let's include a link in the description of the show so these guys can just click on the link and go right to Realtor.com's site and read the report. So there's that, right? I mean, you have to know your market statistics. You have to know it for the sake of being a professional for advising your buyers and your sellers and whatnot. But I'll tell you where my mind is also going is if you're uh, personally investing in real estate, well, doesn't it make sense to invest in real estate where you're going to have population growth and hypothetically increase in your asset price? So, I mean, there's so much um, power with knowing this type of information. And, Jonathan, I really appreciate you being my co-host today, and I'm going to uh, hope to have you back again uh, next month, if not sooner. 
You bet, Tim. It's always a pleasure. Thank you, listeners, and we'll talk with you tomorrow. Remember your homework. I'm so, yeah, we'll talk to you on the radio tomorrow. Your homework from this radio show, as of all the others, is continue to share Real Estate Coaching Radio with all your peers, especially radio shows like this. Um, I didn't take any commercial spots. We ran it straight through because Jonathan was sharing so much powerful information. Listen to this again and again. Guys, every time I talk with Jonathan Smuck, I always feel optimistic. Hopefully you guys feel that too. Um, you know, it's, it, there's every reason to believe that you are in the right place at the right time. Please seize that opportunity and do something about it. Start with a mindset of service, all the folks you can help, and then use this as an opportunity to better yourself and your family. So, you know, this is the opportunity that some of you have been searching for. You're wanting to get back on your feet, recover from the housing recession, the housing crash. It's now. Your opportunity is now. I use the word opportunity maybe too much on this call, but that's truly what it is. If you need any help from us, what do you do? Free coaching calls for agents.com or just go directly to our website, timandjulieharris.com. Jonathan Smoke, thank you very much for being my co-host today. And listeners, we'll talk with you on the radio tomorrow. This program has been a presentation by Tim and Julie Harris Real Estate Coaching. For more information on our real estate coaching and training programs, visit our website at timandjulieharris.com. Remember to tune in weekdays at noon for upcoming shows. And until next time, thank you for listening to Real Estate Coaching Radio with Tim and Julie Harris. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.